Okay, Jesse, last week's FBI betrayal was a truly wild ride. What's the story this time? Serial poisoning, a fugitive from justice, and a surprise twin sister combined to make one of the most wild, twisty, turny stories we've ever covered on Love Murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about lewd liars, randy romance, and mostly relationships gone very, very wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Also, thanks to everyone who's left reviews lately. Please, please, please. We'd love it if you guys left us some kind words and we'd be very happy to send you a sticker or two. Yes, we have them ready to go. <laughs> Andy, you had to send out a couple this week, right? I did. Yay. Not had to. I did so happily. <laughs> With joy and love in every envelope. Yes. <laughs> All right. I mean, I don't even want to give you any more of the highlights than I already have. So let's just get into it. In late February of 1987, a woman named Sue Craft was driving towards her home in Blue Mountain, Alabama, when she spied a person seemingly attempting to break into her neighbor's empty house. Mrs. Craft slowed her car as she passed, squinting into the gray light of the chilly winter's day and made out the form of a woman on her knees, groping desperately at the doorknob. Alarmed, she drove straight to the home of another neighbor. At Janice's house, the other neighbor, the two women called the Aniston police and then bravely made their way over to the would-be burglar. The mysterious woman lay slumped by the door. It was now raining, a chilling drizzle, and the woman was blotchy with red and purple. Her clothes were soaked through, her brown hair plastered to her skull. She held one shoe in her hand. She was unlike a human, more like an animal that had been hit by a car and gravely injured but left to die on the side of the road. Brutal, Jesse. Really trying to drive home the point here that she is not looking too hot, hot. at this point. No. No hot tamale. No, it's cold. It's miserable. She looks like a drowned opossum is what what I'm really going for here. But by the rain, like drowned from the rain. From the rain, not like in a bucket. Yeah. (laughs) God, that's such brutal imagery. I wanted to paint a picture. I didn't know if I wanted to paint a picture that much. So let's carry on. The two kindly neighbors wrapped her in a plastic tarp they found lying nearby and attempted to engage the woman in conversation. Her words slurring, the woman explained that her car had broken down and she had walked and crawled through the woods. She was covered with mud and could barely keep her eyes open. Shortly thereafter, the police arrived and assuming the woman was drunk or in a diabetic coma, quickly called an ambulance. As the officer unwrapped the plastic tarp to assist the paramedics, he was surprised to note that her clothes were exactly those of a fugitive from the law. A woman who had killed, lied, seduced, and devastated all in her way. A fugitive who was considered extremely dangerous. But that woman was delicate, 
beautiful, well-groomed, and haughty. How could this dirt-covered creature be the same human? As the ambulance whisked the potential escaped convict away, the authorities set out to make sense of a tangled web of a life that had ended so pathetically on a dirty porch on a freezing cold day in Alabama. To understand the woman currently dying in the ambulance, we have to go back and understand her baffling history, which includes fraud, deception, murder, and double lives. Sit back and enjoy the roller coaster ride because I think this may be just one of the craziest stories we've ever shared on Love Murder. I love a double life. You love a double life. This is like a triple life. This gets okay, don't wild, Andy. Tease me like that. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about a woman. Her name is Audrey Marie Hilly, and she was born on June 4th, 1933. And her whole life, she goes by her middle name, Marie. So we're going to call her Marie. She was the only child of mill workers Huey and Lucille Frazier. Marie was born in Blue Mountain, and the family moved to Anniston, Alabama, when Marie was in seventh grade. Blue Mountain and, and Anniston are pretty much right next door to each other. Okay. So the year that they moved to Anniston, she was in seventh grade, and she was voted prettiest girl at Quintard Junior High. Marie was a delicate, lovely brunette who was charming and affectionate and completely spoiled by her parents. And she was also attractive to classmates, both male and female. Seems like she made friends easily. One such admirer was a 10th grader named Calvin Roberts, who held a torch for Marie as she entered freshman year of high school. Calvin called upon Marie and carried a deep infatuation for her for the rest of his life, despite a 14-year-old Marie eventually dumping him for an 18-year-old upperclassman named Frank Hilly. Marie had just that sort of effect on men and boys. I thought you were going to stay for the rest of his high school life. And I was like, that's not that bad. And then you said life. Yeah, he actually comes back into the story later on. Oh, God. Guys, don't get back with your like 14-year-old exes. Never a good idea. But yeah, so Calvin will come back later in the story because he did end up having a crush on her for basically his whole life. Yikes. Things with Frank stuck, and the two continued to go steady even as Frank graduated high school and enlisted in the U.S. Navy. So this was the period between World War II and the Korean War, so Frank never saw combat, but he did return on leave in 1950 to Mary Marie, who was not quite yet 17 years old. So she's 16, technically, when they get married. It's Alabama, is- though. It is Alabama. But still, and, and I guess, like, I think this is in the 60s. No, it's 1950, of course. Of course she was married at 16. It's Alabama, 1950. Yeah, yeah. This isn't even a red flag back then. This no. is just what she did. It's normal. Yep. Yeah. So Marie quit school to move around wherever Frank would be stationed, and the young couple lived in Long Beach, California, as well as Boston, Massachusetts. In their early years, in Boston, Marie fell pregnant, and Frank had had enough of the Navy's transient lifestyle, So he quit and the expectant parents moved back to Anniston, Alabama to be closer to their families. Frank got a job at Standard Foundry where he oversaw the creation of iron pipes and Marie gave birth to their son, Michael, in 1953. Marie eventually became a secretary for the Alabama Gas Company and the couple was surprised to get pregnant again, Marie giving birth to daughter Carol in 1960, seven years after their firstborn's birth. Wow. Yeah, so she was a real surprise. In the early years, Carol and Mike reported feeling as though they were a picture-perfect American family. Mike grew up playing Little League, and Carol had cousins her age to play with. Though the couple was not wealthy, the house was always decorated perfectly, and Marie presented herself immaculately. 
However, behind her well-dressed and coiffed facade, Marie had interpersonal problems with her colleagues and it forced her to leapfrog from job to job, always with secretarial work, and she never stayed in one place very long. She often told friends and family that her previous colleagues were jealous of her and ganged up on her. Oh, because she's so pretty. Because she's so pretty. We've heard this before. (laughs) I'm always more skeptical when somebody is like, that person repeatedly has issues with everyone. And then they're like, it's just they're all jealous of me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, hmm. I I think we've isolated the problem and it's you. Common denominator here. Exactly. So she would say that somebody was like bullying her or whatever, and she would move on to greener pastures. And then the same thing seemed to happen to her no matter where she went. Rumors of Marie getting involved romantically with some of her high-powered male bosses probably did nothing to ease tensions with her colleagues. Oh, no. Yeah. So she had a a little bit of a thing for a man with authority, and it appeared that there was more than one fling with a boss. No. Yeah. So at home, Marie had a habit of alienating her family as well, particularly her youngest child, Carol. Marie... Like I said, it had been a surprise when she got pregnant with Carol and she hadn't necessarily wanted another child. And her affection for Carol did not grow as Carol grew into a rough tomboy who didn't do particularly well in school. Like she wanted a pretty little girl who wore pretty little girl dresses and behaved perfectly and like, you know, was in like pageants or something. Yeah. And Carol was just very much her own person and still is. And and she was who she was. And I guess Marie could not form her into the perfect idea of a daughter, which is like a bummer. It's such a bummer. I think my yeah. number one, I've only been a parent for like two and a half years, but the number one advice I would give anyone is just parent the child you have, not the one you wish you had. No, you can't. That's like puts so much pressure on them. Yeah. And if you get to know your kid as they are, they're probably pretty dope, Yeah, you know? So it's sad. I mean, it's sad for Carol mostly. And it's sad that Marie couldn't be a better mom because she's going to miss out on a really formative relationship, you know? So Carol was rebellious and not afraid of confrontation with Marie or anyone else, really. And history of childish tantrums turned into full-blown battles by the time Carol was in her teens. Marie was really overly critical of Carol, often comparing her unfavorably to Lisa, who was Carol's cousin, and basically any other young woman that she approved of. She became disgusted with her own teenage daughter when she began to suspect that Carol was dabbling in lesbian affairs and smoking pot. So Carol was involved romantically with some girls, and she was experimenting with drugs, but of course she vehemently denied both things to her mother because obviously her mother was so prejudiced against that, you know? Of, uh, yeah, who she is. <laughs> yeah, who she is. Like, I can understand. Like, you don't want your kids doing drugs, but you have to accept totally. they love, you yeah. know? And I'm sure that the smoking pot was part of her rebellion against her mom for not 100%. accepting who she is. Yeah. Also, it sounds like she's like a handful. She sounds like really stressful. You might need to toke to calm down. <laughs> like, mom, you're too much. <laughs> Yeah, despite their constant clashes, Carol always did deep down want to please her mother, and some part of her always would, even after Marie committed terrible atrocities against her. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Foreshadowing. 
So, (laughs) Mike graduated from high school and he ended up going to Atlanta Christian College where he studied to become a pastor and he met and married his wife, Terry. With Mike out of the house, the family seemed to disintegrate. Frank was drinking a little too much. He was spending a lot of time at the local Elks Club and he was occasionally getting blackout drunk and Marie was busy spending money the family did not have. She was secretly opening up credit accounts at department stores to buy upscale clothing. Oh, God. Uh-huh. And she even borrowed a line of credit against the family car without Frank's knowledge. Whoa, how could she do that without his knowledge? So they had opened a line of credit together before, and then they paid it off. And then basically, like, she went back to the same, like, lender and was like, okay. hey, can we do that again? And because it had happened before and they had paid it off, they said yes. Okay. And they didn't require him to like re-cosign so that he didn't know about it at all at that point. At this point also, Lucille, Marie's mother, was ill from cancer and she moves into the family home as well. So tensions are really high. There's a lot of people in this household. There's the teenage energy. There's like, you know, caring for an elderly parent who's sick. And then to make matters worse, one of Carol's friends named Sonia passed away suddenly after spending some time at the Hilly House, which is big question mark over here. The source that I'm using today is Poisoned Blood by Philip Ginsburg. Well, that kind of just put something in my head. (laughs) I know. I really should have introduced this before I'm reading this part about Sonia. Being poisoned. Yeah, it was it was a, like a 450-page odyssey. Girl. Yeah, this was a big book. So this might be a slightly longer episode. I'm going to keep it keep it tight, as tight as I can. But yeah, that it looks like very, a big mama right there. It was huge. Look at that. Wow, look at that. It's a ver. I get all of my books at thriftbooks.com and they are all like the 1980s like covers. I love it so <laughs> much. Great? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very well-researched book. He obviously put a lot of time in it. And oh, I also watched an episode of Southern Fried Homicide. <laughs> Excuse me? It's an, an investigation discovery show called Southern Fried Homicide. No, there's not. Yes, there is. And isn't that amazing? It's amazing ama- title. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I think, season three, episode one. And Philip, who wrote the book, is actually on the show. And a couple of other people that we'll discuss are on the show. But I don't want to reveal who's alive and who's dead. So I'll tell you later. Got you. Got you. So we do know one person who's dead. And unfortunately, it's little Sonia. Sonia spent time at the Hillies' house over Christmas of 1973, taking some meals there. There was no sign of any problem until Sonia got what seemed to be a mild bout of flu in early February. Two days later, she sickened suddenly, unable to walk, with a high fever and vomiting, stomach pain, and a bluish tint to her lips and fingernails. Um... Yeah, doesn't sound natural. Her mother took Sonia to the army hospital at Fort McClellan, where the doctors soon decided her condition was too serious to be treated locally. They called for a helicopter ambulance to take her to the children's hospital in Birmingham, but it was too late. Sonia Gibson died in the helicopter before reaching Birmingham. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. A routine autopsy identified the cause of the child's death as severe viral illness leading to an inflammation of the heart lining, but Sonia's mother never fully understood or accepted the explanation. 
Sonia had hardly been sick a day in her life. How could she be taken away so suddenly without any warning? Sonia's mother died without an answer, but the question lived on, later to become a poignant footnote to the story of Marie Hilly. Wow, that's ruthless. Mm -hmm. As Marie entered her 40s, she felt like everything was slipping away from her. Her son, her daughter, her absent husband, and now her looks and youth. So truthfully, Marie did really probably look like five to eight years younger than she was. She kept it like well-maintained, let's say. But the simple fact of aging was enough to depress her. So in an age-old bid to renew her self-esteem and feeling of worthiness, Marie began an affair with her older married boss, Walter Clinton of Clinton Control Company. Oh, such God. a bad idea. If you're feeling bad about yourself, like, you know, go do some yoga or something. Take a hike. Get a dog. There are a million things you can do besides have an affair with your older married boss. Yeah, bad idea. Not, no. Not, not no, on the no. list. Yeah. So Mike began to realize that something seemed not right at home when several times over the phone, his usually reserved father intimated that something was deeply wrong between himself and Marie. But Frank couldn't quite bring himself to say what was bothering him. Finally, while on the golf course with Mike, Frank spit out that one day he had returned home early from work to find Marie in bed with her boss. Oh, I argued with Nathaniel about this because I was like, I think an affair is so much worse if it's being carried out in your own bed that you sleep with your spouse in. Oh my God, 100%. Yes, he was like, an affair is an affair. Like, I think it's just as bad to screw somebody in a motel. I was like, no, I think that's at least having a little decency to like keep it outside the home you share in the bed you sleep in. Yeah, it's disgusting when it's in the same bed. It's like a, a whole other level of low. Yes, it feels like a very personal invasion. Yes. You know? Yeah. So Mike was totally shocked and he did not know how to counsel his father despite being trained in the ministry. It was just, I think that they were pretty conservative, so he could barely wrap his head around his parents sleeping together, let alone his dad finding his mom in bed with another guy. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. So, so he's bad. just like, I don't know what to tell you, Dad. Like, good luck. Like, he was just, he said, like, later on that he had a ton of questions, but at the time, he just wanted to leave. He was like, I just want to not be having this conversation. So he, like, kind of uttered a couple words of, support, but he never spoke to Frank about this again. Shortly after this admission in the fall of 1974, Frank started to get super sick. Stop. Really sick. It began with fevers that would come and go, and it would be like constant over a few weeks time. He would have constant fevers and they would stop and then they would come back again. And then it evolved into severe vomiting and diarrhea until Frank became increasingly dehydrated and disoriented. Like he began to have like fits of not knowing mm -hmm. where he was or what was going on. At first, the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on because the spells were sporadic until eventually it seemed like he was constantly bedridden and confused. After a hospitalization, Frank was finally diagnosed with infectious hepatitis. And the diagnosis was a relief. And the doctor sent him home saying he would recover with medication and bed rest. I mean, at that point, you're just so happy that you know what it is and that it's treatable, you know? However, he didn't get better. In the days that followed, Frank's condition only worsened. Frida, Frank's sister, was alarmed when she came to visit at her brother's terrible condition. 
he was sitting up in bed rubbing a red injection spot on his arm. He explained that his wife had told him that the doctor had instructed her to make home injections of medication that was supposed to improve his liver function. Stop it. Yep. Stop it. And Stop it right now. <laughs> such a mystery what's going on here. Can you even believe it? Their neighbor, a nurse named Doris Ford, had apparently taught Marie how to give the injections. Frida thought that this was quite unusual, but was even more alarmed when Frank said, Frida, I'm sicker than I've ever been in my life. If something isn't done for me, I'm not going to be here very long. After only a few days at home, Frank was readmitted to the hospital where, on May 25th, 1975, at the still youthful age of 45, Frank Hilly took his last breath. Holy shit. Yup. So the official cause of death, like on his death certificate, is infectious hepatitis. Everyone was stunned. I mean, Carol's only 15 years old at this point, and she was already troubled. Like, she was already having problems with her mother. She was already, like, having problems at school. So she's struggling heavily with his death because she was especially close to her father. Oh, my God. Poor girl. Carol's life at this point is so, so bad. And Carrie Hilly is Frank's mother. And, of course, she's feeling this deep, deep grief at the unnatural order of things. Like, your child dying before you, even when they're 45, is still the most, like, painful thing you can imagine, you know? Yeah, no. Even Marie cried hysterically at his hospital bed when Frank was declared dead. The family was in tatters emotionally. But financially, Marie finally had enough scratch to pay off her secret debts. She collected $30,000 in life insurance money and would continue to receive $5,000 a year as well in Social Security survivor's benefits. So Marie, of course, totally paid off her debts and invested wisely and turned her relationship with her daughter around, right? LOL. No, of course. Of course <laughs> oh, she did not. My God. Oh, my God. End of story. End We're of done. story. It was a great episode today. Hope you guys all had fun. Love you. Bye. No, of course she didn't. She went on a spending spree buying a brand new Oldsmobile, expensive jewelry, new furniture, and gifts for the kids, including a washing machine for Mike and his now pregnant wife, Terry. Marie had hoped that Frank's death and the presents she showered Carol with would make them closer, but Carol continued to pull away from her mother more than ever, which even without grief, it's totally normal and age appropriate for teenagers to prefer the company of their friends over their mother. Yes. You know, yes. <laughs> it's just, it's the natural way of things. You can't take it personally if your teenage child would rather not talk to you and rather be on the phone all day or texting or whatever, you know? Yeah. But Marie took it personally. Of she always was very selfish and she always was very self-focused and she'd be like, nobody loves me and nobody pays attention to me. And she always wanted more from everybody. Or they're jealous because I'm pretty. Yeah. <laughs> so she couldn't stand it and she would try to force Carol to stay home and spend time with her, which of course backfired because nobody wants to hang out with their mom and they especially don't want to if they're needy and controlling. Or you if know? their mom is poisoning their friends. <laughs> and father. And father. Yeah. So Marie was elated when Mike got a junior pastor position locally. So there was an opening at their like local Anniston, Alabama church. So he and his wife, Terry, decided to move back into the home to save money because they were having a baby soon and they wanted to get a house. Yeah. 
So with one kid kind of like phasing her out, she felt like all of a sudden she has this other kid back in. However, after a few months, Mike and Terry were real tired of the situation. Also, this house is packed. I mean, they say that it had enough room, but we're talking Marie, her teenage daughter, Carol, now Mike and his pregnant wife and her sick mother, Lucille. And they're all living in the same house. So Mike and Terry were like, we're a young couple. We're about to have a baby. We'd really like to live on our own at this point. So they began to look for a new apartment. And this really pissed Marie off. Like she had finally gotten one kid who everyone said that Mike was her favorite back under her roof. And now he wants to leave again. So she tried to manipulate manipulate them any way possible. She was like, oh, I've been so lonely since your father died. You can't leave. And then she was like, I guess Terry had said that she would help with Lucille because Terry wasn't working. And she's like, you promised that you would help with my elderly mother. And now you're going back on that promise. And luckily, like Mike, especially, he is later on, you'll see Mike in Southern Pride Homicide. He's very strong. He's a strong dude. And I think it's really hard with a parent like this to set boundaries. And it seems like he really did. He was like, nope, mom, love you, but we're moving out no matter what you say, you know. So the night before they were set to move out, however, a mysterious fire broke out in the Hilly house. I'm going to say mysterious a lot about things that might not seem so mysterious to you. Luckily, the firefighters got to the house in time and the entire family had been out when it had occurred. So no one was injured in the fire. But the smoke damage was so extensive that Carol, Lucille, and Marie moved in with Mike and Terry for a month in their new apartment. You've got to be kidding me. Yep. Well, the home was being cleaned and repaired. Can you imagine you're finally getting your own place, which I can't imagine was more than one or two bedrooms. No, if they just have one baby on the way. They're just a couple with one baby on the way. They don't even have the baby yet. They're probably like in the process of nesting and like getting everything ready. (laughs) Yes. And the whole family that they were trying to get away from moves into the house with them. Okay. So not only that, but when the house was finally ready to move back into, another mysterious fire started at the apartment of Mike and Terry's new neighbors. So the apartment next to Mike and Terry's. And the smoke damage at that apartment fire forced Mike and Terry to move back in with Marie, etc. Isn't that insane? So she's just going around lighting mysterious fires, <laughs> potentially harming loved ones. To keep Mike and Terry under her roof for some reason. Wow. As relations with Carol grew tenser and her mother Lucille's cancer worsened, Marie began to act out by setting small fires at her own house and her neighbors. And then she would call the police to report the arson. So she was like setting these fires herself and then being like, somebody set my closet on fire. And what what did the police say? So at first, I mean, she just is a very, she's very well-dressed. She's very well-spoken. Everyone comments about it. So at first they're, they're believing her. And she became a frequent flyer at the police station, claiming that she was the victim of Again, I say this word, mysterious harassment. Oh, God. No one knew where it was coming from. So she claimed that she was allegedly receiving threatening phone calls and notes, break-ins, and of course, the arson. So I think that the reason for this long-lasting deception, because this goes on for months that she's pretending to be the target of harassment. Okay. And I think that, A, she was trying to get ahead of 
the earlier fires that she set when she was trying to keep Mike and Terry with her. Like, so she could say like, hey, you know, somebody's doing this to me, not that I'm doing this to myself, you know? It's like this shadowy villain. But also, I just think also, number two, she just liked the attention. She loved to be able to go to the cops and get attention. She loved to be like, poor me, and like also feel special because she was like, somebody like wanted to target her. That made her different. Yeah. They also talk about in the book, Philip Ginsburg talks about how she was obsessed with reading novels, like anything from like romances to thrillers, really obsessed with fiction. And it seems like she wanted to make herself like this heroine of her own dramatic life story, you know? Whoa. Yeah. So she even started an affair with one of the police officers. Stop. He was married? I don't know if it was an affair because I don't know if he was married. It just talked about how he also was sleeping with a lot of people. So it was more like a a friends with benefits, a cop with benefits over here. (laughs) She had him on speed dial. Exactly. So not all of the officers were treated to Marie's womanly delights like he was. Oh, my God. But a few others were offered coffee while visiting her home to investigate her alleged harassment. Unfortunately, those officers would complain about stomach cramping, vomiting, and diarrhea after enjoying Marie's special roast. Oh, my God. She was poisoning the cops who came to her house. Why? Honestly, I don't know. For fun? <laughs> Power thing? Because what, what kind of brass balls do you have to have to poison law enforcement when they're just coming to help you out about your imaginary claims? Imaginary claims. Oh, yeah. my and God. Oh, my God. Unfortunately, they were not the only ones getting mysteriously ill around Marie. At four months pregnant, Terry Hilly could not figure out why her morning sickness was not improving. Oh, my God, Jessica. In fact, it only grew worse and worse, and now she was developing pains in her stomach and legs. Her kind mother-in-law, Marie, would attempt to keep her strength up by providing bowl after bowl of special potato soup for Terry. Potato soup? Yeah, that was like her thing. And they describe it later as like a potato beet soup. And I was like, what the hell is that? Sounds disgusting. Somebody's going to write to us and be like, no, potato beet soup is delicious. (laughs) Oh, no. Please tell me the baby's okay. I cannot tell you Oh, my God, Jess. Oh, my God. So the fits only grew worse after she ate, of course. Terry had to visit the hospital four different times while she and Mike were living Uh, with Marie. An old friend even teased her saying, you were never sick until you got married, Terry. Maybe marriage just doesn't agree with you. Or maybe it's your psycho mother-in-law who's poisoning your potato soup. Who's poisoning her unborn grandchild. Yes. And tragically... Terry suffered a miscarriage. You think? Yeah, a little bit of arsenic will do that to a fetus. I was like afraid of walking in a room that had been freshly painted. I know. Could you imagine ingesting poison? And also, it's just you don't assume anyone's poisoning you ever. No! Like you wouldn't assume your mother-in-law was poisoning you. And I doubt that potato beet soup tasted good on its own. You probably couldn't tell that it had arsenic in it. Yeah. I don't know what arsenic tastes like. Clearly. (laughs) Like, if I did, this would be a very different podcast. It would be called How I Survived Arsenic Poisoning. 
I survive. Potato soup yeah. arsenic poisoning. <laughs> exactly. But there is good news. Eventually, Terry and Mike moved away to Florida and Terry's health rebounded quickly and the couple was blessed with another pregnancy and this time Terry delivered a healthy baby. Oh my God, that is insane. By this point, both Mike and the police were becoming wary of Marie's behavior. So Mike didn't like suspect Marie of poisoning his pregnant wife at this point, at least not yet. But he was concerned about some of her behavior, especially when Carol divulged that Marie had set Carol's car on fire to receive an insurance payout and then had claimed that the car had been stolen to the police. Oh, my God. So he knows she's up to some shenanigans <sighs> and he's getting a little like confused about this harassment that she's suffering. And there's also this police officer, Lieutenant Carol, who was not the one sleeping with Marie, and nor, thankfully for him, was he drinking her coffee. Turns out he just wasn't a big coffee drinker. And he began to also suspect that Marie herself was behind all of her complaints, but he couldn't prove it. Yeah. So he had no proof, but he started just kind of like not paying attention to her calls as much okay. because he knew psychologically that she was behind it. Eventually, as Marie most likely suspected that they were on to her, the calls to the police petered out. I guess also if they're it's like an extinguishing technique. If they're not giving her attention, then maybe she stops doing it because she's not getting that attention. Yeah. After Carol's graduation from high school in 1978, she and Marie moved down to Pompano Beach, Florida to live with Mike and Terry. What? Not only did Terry start getting sick again, you know, only days after Marie's arrival, Marie also stole a credit card from their home and began to rack up thousands of dollars of debt unbeknownst to the young couple. Just like apparel? Just clothing and stuff? Just clothing and stuff. I think that's it. Like the only thing it sounds like she bought a lot of was clothing, furniture, and she had a thing about cars. She was always like scamming her way into a new vehicle. Weird. Yeah. Um, which I guess all of those things are kind of status symbols. Clothing, furniture, cars, you know? Yeah. And so Mike and Terry apparently had like a credit card for emergencies and they literally never used it. So they like put it in a drawer and they didn't even know when they started getting the bills, they used to just throw them out because every month they, before Marie moved in, they were just getting zero balance yeah. bills, you know? And so they were like, oh, we just chuck it right in the trash because we know we haven't used the card. Yeah. You know, they weren't checking it. And then they got a phone call and they're like, you are so past overdue. We're going to take you to collections. And they were like, what are you talking about? We've never used this card ever. And they found out that Marie had stolen it. So what happened? Well, there's like a whole bunch of stuff. So they didn't figure this out until Marie had already gone back to Alabama. Okay. So Mike and Terry were relieved when Marie and Carol decided to go back to Alabama and move in with Frank's mother, Carrie. The reason why they moved into Florida and now they're moving in with Carrie is because for some reason, despite getting the money from his insurance, she was always broke. And so Mike has no idea what she did with the money other than like these lavish gifts and stuff. Okay. But she seemed like constantly broke no matter what. So when she returns to Alabama, Marie takes out a couple of life insurance policies on both Mike and Carol. She also strikes up a few affairs with rich married men, but she can't seem to get any of them to actually leave their wives for her. Poor thing. <laughs> There's this whole thing in the book about like letters that she wrote to a couple different men that were very similar, like, I've met someone, his name is John, and we're going to get married, and I'd much rather be with you. And the time we've shared is amazing, but I need something solid in my life. And, like, basically they were, like, manipulations around an imaginary fiancé yep. to get the person to be like, 
oh, I actually really want to be with you too. I'll leave my wife, you know? Yeah, and they're like, yeah, you're a crazy bitch. Bye. Yeah, they did not work. One of these men was Kelvin Robertson, who had been her childhood boyfriend back before Frank. Remember old Kelvin? Oh, poor Cal. Yes. So now Calvin was a wealthy man in San Francisco who owned a nationwide freight hauling company. On a visit home to see his parents, Calvin had serendipitously run into Marie, and the two had started a cross-country extramarital love affair. Oh, he's married? He's been married for years, like 30 years at this point. Did he have kids? He had grown kids, yeah. So Calvin declined to leave his wife, but he pledged his love for Marie constantly in letters, and he would visit her sometimes in Alabama. Okay. And he promised that he would always be there for her. So when she made up having cancer, he sent her $3,000. Oh, my God. Yep. Wow. So crazy. So she, I think she got him for some more money. Other than that, he sent her money for this and that. Okay. But that was the big one is that she told him she needed three grand for cancer treatments. Wow. That's so low. And again, still, for some reason, Marie was constantly broke. The sporadic secretarial work and bonuses from her lovers was just not cutting it anymore. She began passing bad checks and scamming the bank. Like, she would write herself a check and, like, ask for a forward from the bank on it. And they would give her, like, that forward and then the the check wouldn't clear, obviously, you know? By now, Mike had discovered the credit card balance as well as another loan that he had co-signed with her for and that had defaulted so he's like you ran up all this debt and I'm on the hook for this loan that you haven't repaid and she had like offered to take over the lease on one of his cars when he was going to sell the car and she was like no I'll just take over the payments and she stopped paying it so now they're like coming at him being like you haven't paid for this car and he's like my mom was supposed to take over the payments wow So he has to get himself out of a pile of debt now because of everything that his mother did to him. However, with the many of Marie's bills that were going unpaid, the one she never let lapse was payment on her children's life insurance I knew you were going to say that. I knew Mm -hmm. you were going to say that. Man, brutal. Which was probably a good idea because somehow 19-year-old Carol began to get really, really sick in 1979. How is she still living with her? I'd be like, peace. Yeah, I don't know. Carol's a complicated person, and I think that she had a lot of affection for her mom despite their differences. And I think also at this point, she's like going back to school and getting on her feet. Like clearly her mother could not help her financially with school. So she's probably like just making money and trying to figure it out. And that's a free place to live, you know? Oh, God. So Carol begins having nausea and diarrhea and her condition worsens until she needs to be hospitalized. She soon had pains throughout her body and numbness in her extremities. She was in and out of the hospital and doctor's offices for months, completely mystifying her doctors as test after test came back negative. Carol wasn't able to go to school or hold a job. Her illness took over her life and no one could tell her what it was or if she'd ever get better. Wow. Yeah, just psychologically, this is also just humongously damaging. This is from poisoned blood. The physical symptoms were not the worst part of what was happening to her. Each time she started to think she was getting better, the sickness came back. Had been like this for close to four months now. Just when she was getting her hopes up, they were crushed again. 
She'd been taking summer courses, but she couldn't keep up and her life seemed to be falling apart. Even when she felt a little better, she couldn't make a date for the next weekend. She couldn't be sure she was going to stay well. She felt as if the world was closing in on her. Carol was depressed and anxious, her mother told the doctor. Carol cried at the least provocation and lost her temper easily. After leaving the doctor's office the previous day, Marie said, Carol had gotten furious with her. She had screamed and cursed at her. Dr. Donald had done everything he could. Perhaps there was some psychological explanation. He told them he wanted Carol to see a psychiatrist. Wow. He would make an appointment for Carol and let them know. Very understandably, Carol exploded. I ain't going to no damn psychiatrist, she shouted. I ain't crazy. I want to know what's wrong with me. I want to get better. She broke down in tears. What is the point of living if it's going to be like this, she thought. But she had to admit that something was wrong. She was growing steadily weaker and she couldn't get free of the pains for more than a day or two at a time. Her mother insisted on taking her to the clinic again. Carol reluctantly gave in. So Carol is eventually admitted to the Aniston Medical Center for more tests and treatment, but the doctors still have no clue what's going on with her. At this point, she has wasted away to 90 pounds. Oh my God. She wasn't a very big girl. She was like, I think like 5'1", five, 5'2", five, but still 90 pounds is nothing. No, yeah, that's like Mary Kate and Ashley style. Yep. So they begin to suspect that she has anorexia and she's potentially making herself ill, which of course infuriates Carol. I'd be so frustrated if no one was figuring it out and just saying like, well, you must be mentally ill or have an eating disorder. Yeah. You know? And is she, she must be eating because she is getting poisoned from Marie. Exactly. She's doing everything yeah. she can to eat. Yeah. She's just puking it all up yeah. because it's poisonous. Yeah. While waiting in the waiting room at the hospital, Marie allegedly meets a woman who has a daughter with a similar condition to Carol and recommends medication that worked for her own child. She later tells Carol all of this very excitedly and begins to inject Carol with this special medicine on a daily basis. Oh, this woman is batshit. Batshit. Being the good mother that she is, Marie even brings in baby food to spoon feed her child when she can't eat. So she's obviously poisoning the baby food. Oh my God. It's like she's so weakened that she can't keep anything down. And she's like, here, I have something for you because you're so weak. Have some more poison, please. Have some poison with baby food. Have some poisoned yams, my darling. By the time Carol is admitted to yet another hospital this time Caraway Methodist Hospital, she can barely walk and the pain in her body is constant. How long has it been now? All in all, the poisoning goes on a little over five months, I think. That's a long ass time to be poisoned every day. While Carol is in the hospital, Marie is arrested for writing bad checks, but she does make bail. Also around this time, Mike is beginning to have suspicions about his father's death. He approached his wife and in-laws with the belief that his mother may have been poisoning his father, hence the injections that his aunt had told him about. He called the coroner in Aniston to see if his gut feeling would be enough to dig up his father's body for testing, but of course it wasn't. Like, you can't just call and be like, I have a gut feeling. They need proof. So the coroner's like, definitely let's stay in touch. If you dig up any evidence whatsoever that this is true, we'll exhume the body. Does he not know what's happening with Carol? 
he knows she's sick at this point, but he's about to realize what's actually going on. Okay. This is all happening kind of like around the same time. Okay. So at this time, one of Carol's friends witnesses Marie giving her an injection and, of course, finds the situation extremely disconcerting. She calls Frida, Carol's aunt, and she reports that what she had seen and how concerned she was for Carol. So now Frida calls Mike in a panic, who in turn called Carol and dragged it out of her that their mother was injecting so-called medicine into her increasingly sickened body. Because at first, Carol was telling Mike no, because her mother told her not to tell Mike. She was like, basically, the nurse next door helped me get this medicine and she, you know, could lose her job if anyone finds out that she helped me get this medicine and that she taught me how to do injections. So you can't tell anyone. You can't tell your doctors. You can't tell Mike. You can't tell anyone that I'm giving you these injections. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Mike finally gets it. He's like, be honest with me. She's giving you something. And she does finally admit it. By this time, Carol was down to a frightening 81 pounds. Holy shit. And she was just in constant pain. So Marie takes her out of the Caraway Hospital against her doctor's wishes. She tells Carol that they're going to go home. But after one night spent at a motel, she changes her mind and delivers her to yet another new hospital. This time, the one at University of Alabama. Her condition was deplorable. Here, I'll read you a little bit from Poison Blood about what was going on in Carol's body. The examination revealed the full extent of her muscular and neurological damage. She was wasted and bony like a famine victim in some underdeveloped country. The feeling was gone from her feet and legs. She was virtually paralyzed below the knees. Oh, my God. And her hands were almost useless. They wanted to keep her in the hospital for further examination, and her mother agreed. We're going to find out what's wrong with you, the woman doctor told Carol, and for the first time in months, she dared to believe it was true. At least now there was one person who didn't think she was crazy. So the doctor had a feeling the whole time. Yes, the they like it was her first like female doctor, and she like took her <laughs> another room. <laughs> it was her first woman doctor. Hey, just saying, I'm not saying, but I'm saying. <laughs> and she was like, I don't believe you're doing this to yourself. I think something's really going on wrong in your body. We're going to figure out what's happening here. And she was like, oh, my God, thank God one person believes me and believes that this is not something psychological. So around this time, Marie is arrested again, like after she's admitted Carol to the new place because she had passed another bad check to a furniture company. And she was also in contempt of court for missing her previous hearing on bad checks. Okay. They describe this as like this crazy period in her life where she's running around committing check fraud, poisoning Carol, checking her in and out of hospitals. At some point, Mike like came up to get his money from her and she poisoned him because he was insisting she pay him. Like she is. Why did he eat anything from her? He didn't know. This was before he really suspected it, which might have been why he suspected it. He just didn't know, like, he was, like, hanging out with her, and then he, like, got really sick, and then the next day he had to go home, and she was like, oh, guess I'll have to get the money for you later. (laughs) He's like, I guess so. Oh, my God. Yep. So Mike is still in Florida, and he tells Frida about what he believes happened with their dad. Like, they're talking to each other, and he encourages her to approach Carol's doctors at the University of Alabama. 
after finding out that Marie was administering, you know, these also mysterious injections to Carol as well. Neurologist Dr. Brian Thompson takes Frida's concerns seriously. Based on Carol's symptoms, it could be poisoning of any heavy metal like lead, mercury, or arsenic. But based on Frida's report of injections, it would seem most likely that it was arsenic. Oh, my God. Once in the bloodstream, arsenic could be carried throughout the body, causing nausea, diarrhea, and other gastrointestinal symptoms simultaneously attacking the nervous system beginning at the periphery, the hands and feet, and then moving towards the center of the body. Some of the poison could be excreted over time, but the rest remained in the body, forming compounds that were stored in the bones, skin, and hair. These deposits could be identified by complex, time-consuming laboratory testing of samples taken from the patient. But there was a faster way of checking for arsenic poisoning based on the fact that it could also be deposited in the fingernails and toenails. The arsenic compound eliminated the pink pigment from the fingernail, creating a whitish line across the width of the nail. The deposits, which were named Aldridge Mees lines after their discoverers, started about six weeks after the arsenic entered the body. Dr. Thompson looked at the fingernails, then examined her toes. The telltale white line ran evenly across every nail. Oh my God. Carol Hilly had been poisoned. Blood and urine tests would later confirm that this was absolutely true. Oh, no. Yeah. So Marie, who is still in police custody due to the bad checks, is now questioned with this new evidence and emphatically denies poisoning her daughter, of course. She claims that the only injections she gave Carol was shots of Phenergan, a nausea suppressant that had once allegedly been prescribed by Dr. Donald, Carol's first physician, who had conveniently passed away the month prior. So he could not support her claim, yeah. whether that was true or not. So by now, Mike had told the coroner about Carol's poisoning, and the state made plans to exhume Frank's corpse for testing. Wow. When they informed Marie that this was going to happen, she had no reaction. So they were trying to like, see if she would panic. Yeah. And she was like, oh, no, that's a great idea. Cool, 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 whatever. It's a lunatic, yeah. So Maria's denying the poisoning, and she's still being held in jail. Frida is now snooping, which is good on you, Frida. Yeah. So Frida goes through her house and her storage, because also Marie had left some stuff at Frida's house, so it's, like, in her jurisdiction anyway. It's crazy that she's, I think this is our first murder criminal who's, like, already in jail. He was already in jail when they found out she was poisoning. I know. It's very convenient yeah. for the police. So they discover not only a liquid vial of something in Marie's jewelry box, which turned out to be poison, but also a paper bag that contained both the baby food containers and a bottle of rat poison. The active ingredient being, of course, arsenic. Arsenic. Yep. Wow. When Frida turns in the evidence, the police remember that they seized her purse when she was initially arrested on the check business. So they had arrested her with her belongings. Yep. And so they just had like taken her purse and not searched it because she was just arrested for bad checks. So they had just like put it in a locker for when she got out and she would retrieve it, you know? Okay. So now Lieutenant Carroll's like, wait a minute. <laughs> She's wanted for attempting to murder and maybe murdering. We have to go and look and search her purse. And he finds goddamn poison in her purse. Please tell me that some of the police were still, like, working there that had been poisoned as well. Were they all, like... I think this is where the reports were, like, 
oh, wait, did you have a little diarrhea after having that coffee? We never talked about it because it's really uncomfortable. Did you get the the runs? A little TMI, but were you gassed? Yeah, I think that that's like they, after she's brought in, they're like, wait a minute. Every time I drank her coffee, I felt like shit. Wow. Yeah. So while the autopsy on Frank is ongoing, Marie shockingly makes bail. They let her out. Oh, my God. Yeah, and on $14,000, which seems really low. That seems really low for attempted murder. It really does. So apparently one former boss who may or may not have had an affair with Marie put Um, up 10 grand. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to say for 10 grand, he put it in. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, he got a little, uh, you know. Yeah, he got a little something. It went in somewhere. (laughs) I'm not saying where, but maybe an ear, maybe an elbow. I don't know. It was going in. So yeah, so he put up 10 grand and four other neighbors and friends put up the remaining four. And so they release her to a motel in Birmingham and her attorneys actually like want her in hiding essentially in Birmingham because this is now getting some media attention. So she's kind of like hiding out in this motel. And what year is this? This is 1980. It's either late 1979 or early 1980. Okay. Yeah, so she's waiting in the hotel to await her hearings on the check charges and potential more charges like murder and attempted murder. Obviously, letting her out was dumb as hell. And very quickly, Marie fakes her own kidnapping. Oh, she does. Yes. She ransacked the hotel room and left a note that said, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me. Next, Marie robbed her aunt and uncle's house of women's clothing and their car. And on the back of an envelope, the following note was written, do not call the police. We will burn you out if you do. We found what we wanted and won't bother you again. P.S. Your car is in Gadsden. Later on, a handwriting analyst would confirm that the notes were written by the same person. Oh, man. She, like, thinks she's smart, but she's not. She thinks... She's really smart, and we're not even getting into the best part of her deception yet. She's just a, you know, she's pretty. She's pretty. She's a little past her prime. She thinks she's the heroine of her own adventure novel, clearly. While all of this craziness is occurring, Frank's mother, Carrie, also dies of cancer, and family members report that both Lucille and Carrie had complained of stomach issues in their last few months while they were living with Marie. I mean, it seems it's like an active ingredient in all of her meals and drinks. So that doesn't surprise me. It's a special (laughs) ingredient. It's like, "Mm, how is this tuna salad so good, Marie? You have to give me the recipe. Well, it's just a pinch of rat poison. It brings the salt in the fish to life. (gasps) Oh, Um, God. So they do autopsies on both women. And it's clear that both women did die of cancer. That's like their cause of death. Okay. However, they both had elevated arsenic in their systems as well. So she was 100% poisoning both elderly women. Oh my God. There's no question though about Frank. So when they exhume him and they run the test, it is staggering the amount of arsenic that is found in his body. I have a question. 100% killed by arsenic. If you just like poison people and they like don't die, is that a crime? (laughs) I feel like it should be. It should be. Should it be attempted murder? It's not like, well, they died of cancer. Yeah. I mean, 
what it's who cares if it wasn't what actually killed you said them elevated you know? levels does i mean is moderate level if someone dies of moderate levels of arsenic is that well one thing i didn't know is that apparently there is like a very trace trace tiny amount of arsenic that can be normal well in our isn't systems. there arsenic in rice and white rice I think so. Yeah. yeah. Like there's some things that like there's a normal amount of arsenic to have in your body. So maybe they couldn't pinpoint like was it so negligibly elevated that they couldn't like really determine that it was attempted murder or like what, you can, what you're allowed level? to poison just a little yeah, bit. Like what level <laughs> is okay. attempted murder? You know? <laughs> just a pinch. Like you shoot. Just to make it taste good. Do you shoot at someone and you don't hit them. You didn't murder them. Yeah, but you could probably – could you get charged with attempted murder if you shoot at somebody and you just miss them? Probably, right? So you probably, have to yeah. get attempted murder for intentionally poisoning someone, <laughs> yeah. even if it's just Unless moderate. She's like, she's like, look, guys, I poisoned my husband to death. I almost poisoned my daughter to death. I know how much, like, will kill somebody. I wasn't trying to kill them. I was just having a good time. Yeah. We were just having some fun. We are just experimenting. Just poisony fun. Yeah. I do think that there was some experimentation about how much it takes to kill somebody there. Oh, you know? God. I mean, I guess because then it's like torture. Like her daughter was like tortured. Oh, my God. Her physical condition was extremely poor. She couldn't walk. She couldn't use her hands. And her mother was gaslighting her into thinking she was crazy and taking her to doctors that were like, I think it's all in Carol's head. Yeah, you know? she's anorexic. Yeah, the arsenic diet is not one that we want to be on, kids. On January 11th, 1980, Audrey Marie Hilly was indicted in absentia for first-degree murder. It had been nearly two months since she had fled. So, yeah, so she took off at the end of 1979. By the time they charged her with murder, it was early 1980, and she is on the run. So Marie's aunt's car had turned up at a bus station in Marietta, Georgia, within a few days of the staged kidnapping. The district attorney officially requested that the FBI get a federal warrant for Marie at this point. The next known sighting came from a sheriff of a small Georgia town. And this story is from Poison Blood. I think this story is insane because it just shows you how unassuming Marie was and how manipulative she was. A woman had come to the police station with a sad story. The chief said she had become friendly with a woman on the bus. Awakening from a nap, she discovered that the woman had gotten off sometime during the night. Her purse with all of her money, identification, and a valuable watch was gone. The woman was personable and well-spoken, a cut above the lost souls who usually turned up at the police station, but she had nothing to fall back on. Her close relatives were either dead or estranged. There was no one she could call for help. After taking the report, the chief arranged lodging for her. The next day, he took up a collection among the little town's merchants. With the small stake in hand, she got on the bus and left. From a picture, the chief identified the woman as Audrey Marie Hilly. She is on the run for murder and attempted murder, and she goes into a police station and says she was robbed and gets the police chief to give her money. Yep. Unbelievable. It sounds exactly right. Yeah. I love that this bitch is still well-dressed. She's still well-dressed on the run with nothing. <sighs> so the bus had been headed eastward towards Savannah on the Atlantic coast of Georgia. In Savannah, the agents found a hotel where a woman answering Marie's description had registered soon after the bus arrived. After staying a few days at the hotel, she had left for the man. 
available descriptions of her companion were vague. If the identifications were all accurate, since leaving Aniston, Marie had been heading steadily southward and eastward towards Savannah. And there, the trail ended again. This time, there was no way to pick it up. She had vanished without a trace. Oh, my God. Failing to catch her trail, the FBI set out to profile her and attempt to catch her where she'd most likely be. Kind of like, remember when we talked about John List, how yeah. they like <laughs> they sent out to pharmacies that he might try to get hemorrhoid medication? With Marie Hilly, one key was her scrupulous attention to her appearance. Almost everybody the FBI agents interviewed had mentioned it, how neat she always seemed, how well-dressed, almost a model of personal grooming, with no hair astray, no thread hanging from a seam. So the FBI sent circulars to beauty parlors around the country in any town or city where someone thought she might have gone. Beauticians magazines were asked to publish her picture. In southern Georgia, up into the Carolinas, and south to Florida, wherever there was some chance of picking up her trail, agents showed Marie's photograph in the fancier clothing stores and boutiques. That's a lot better than hemorrhoid cream. It's a lot better than this middle-aged white man who looks like every other middle-aged white man who has hemorrhoids might come in for his hemorrhoids. Do you see this man buying hemorrhoid cream in excess? At least hers is like chic. She's like, I'm in a magazine. Yeah, hers is chic. Can you imagine them arresting just some poor other guy? He's like, I already have hemorrhoids. Now you're arresting me? (laughs) Yoikes, this is a bad day. So despite the FBI's involvement, it would be over three years before Marie Hilly was caught. And when she would be, it would include a whopper of a story. Oh, my God. So now we are entering the Audrey Marie Hilly story part two, the birth of Robbie Hannon. Marie's movements after she faked her own kidnapping are murky, but she did meet a man named John Homan in Fort Lauderdale in early 1980, a little more than three months after she left Alabama. So it's unclear what exactly she was doing in those three months, and it's also speculated that she might have known John before because Fort Lauderdale is near Pompano Beach where she lived with Mike and Terry, so they're like, Maybe she knew this guy before and he actually was like going along with it and okay. along with her new name. And where's Carol? Carol's still back in Aniston. I think she moved in with Frida. Okay. Yeah. So she gets better, of Good. course, ish. I mean, they say it's really sad. It took like months and months for her to like even mostly recover and she was like still walking with a limp. That's insane. I mean, her system had to be oh yeah, just screwed up forever. Yep. So she's back in Alabama. She's safe now. She's recovering. So this is kind of like a happier murder story because she survived. Mm-hmm. I mean, poor Frank didn't. But yeah. like at least Carol's alive. She's out there. She's living. She's living her best life. She was oh. on the Southern Fried Homicide. Okay, good. Yeah. So Carol survives. So there's like some question about whether they might have known each other. But the story that he tells is that he did not know her and he knew her only as this new creation, Robbie Hannon. Oh, so that's her new name. John was a balding divorce machinist who had inherited a trust from his mother, but he and his siblings had made bad financial choices and basically frittered the fortune away. Oh my God. Yeah. He lived extremely modestly by the time he allegedly met Robbie in a bar in Fort Lauderdale. John would later confide to a coworker and friend that Robbie had been a sex worker when they first met and that she had picked him up for a good time. Yeah. 
and but he <laughs> fell in love with her. Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> Not for a bad time, I guess. Uh, I feel like my grandmother, my 99-year-old grandmother trying to explain something. She, he, he picked um, her up. You know, <laughs> a good time. Yeah. So he, he said that, you know, they fell in love and mm-hmm. that he ended up, quote, saving her from a life of sin. Oh, my God. So Robbie, we're going to start calling Marie Robbie here because this is what she's going by. Robbie had told him that she had been married at the age of 16 to a wealthy lawyer named Joseph Hannon, that they had been truly happy and had had a wonderful life until the family car was struck by a drunk driver killing both kids, Joey and Carol, instantly. Dramatic, Robbie. (laughs) She has a dramatic Drama. You know, she could have saved us all some trouble and just written like bad Harlequin romances or something. Wow. So she says that for the next two years, she suffered from panic attacks and bouts of depression until her beloved husband, impacted by grief at his children's death and his wife's frail condition, died of a stress-induced heart attack. So now she's alone in the world. Uh She has got nobody. Devastated by the demolition of her entire family, Robbie fled Texas before she claimed her inheritance. So, like, she tells the story, and then she's, like, explaining that the reason she has no money, though, even though her husband was wealthy, was because she was so depressed and in such a weird state that she just, like, didn't want to deal with it, and she just fled to Florida. Yeah. That's her story. So she also claimed that he had been her first customer, and she was unaccustomed to sex work. So... (laughs) She's like, you're the only one I've ever done this with. And I'm really secretly rich if I could ever go back and claim my inheritance from my dead husband and dead children in Texas. She's like a sex work virgin, a rich sex work virgin. Yes, exactly. The very common rich sex work virgin. (laughs) So John allegedly bought this whole story hook, line, and sinker. And Poor the two guy. get very serious. Yep. I mean, he gets duped hard. Eventually, the two moved to New Hampshire to be closer to John's brother, Peter. From August 1980 to June 1981, they live quite happily under the radar in the Northeast. They end up renting a modest house, and they both got jobs. John working at Findings, a company that made small metal parts like latches and clasps jewelry. And Robbie as a customer service clerk at the Central Screw Corporation, where they manufactured, you guessed it, screws. Wow. Robbie did well in this position. And unlike Marie back in Alabama, she was mostly well-liked by her colleagues. The pair were so happy that in May of 1981, they tied the knot. After nine months at the screw company, Robbie announced that she would have to return to Texas to fight her husband's brother for her rightful inheritance. And that she might have to spend several months there in a protracted legal battle. Like, they basically said, she said that she had to prove that she was mentally sound to collect because she had been in a, such a mental state when she left Texas or something. Oh, this my is God. What her story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The managers were sorry to see her go as Robbie had been a reliable and capable employee. They told her that she'd be welcomed back with open arms whenever she wanted to return. John, however, was a different story. This created a little rift between the two of them because he had no idea why he wasn't allowed to accompany his wife to Texas. And the situation ended up creating a rift between the still newlyweds, which would make sense if if your wife is going back to fight for an inheritance and you love her, you'd be like, 
okay, let's go back together. I can get a different job. Like, you know, you don't spend months and months apart. No. For an arbitrary reason. No. He told a coworker around this time that he did not know if Robbie would be returning from Texas or if they would be together, even if she did. That summer, Robbie swindled a kindly Texas family called the Coxes into taking her in after befriending the mother and ingratiating herself to the whole family. She told the same sad story about her deceased family to the Coxes, but she also added in finding happiness with John in New Hampshire, which was true. This is basically <laughs> one truth and two lies, because then she also sprinkled in some new things into her backstory. A rare blood disorder that she suffered from and the invention of an identical twin sister named Terry. So Marie's father had been a twin and Marie had often fantasized about discovering a long lost oh twin sister. Oh my God. <laughs> so I think she figured like while she's lying about everything else in her life, why not just build a life like that she wanted and create all these sub characters too why, you know why not throw a parent trap in there huh <laughs> yeah so robbie half-heartedly begins to build a life in dallas but she misses john terribly and she wants to reconcile when john agrees to take her back she moves back to new hampshire this time bringing back a brand new blood disease and more tales of terry the previously unmentioned identical twin sister wow so she gets her job back at Central Screw and she also begins to talk to her coworkers about this blood disorder and her twin. During this phase, Robbie wrote fake letters to and from Terry to establish her twin sister's existence. At work, she would frequently go into a room and say she was making calls to Terry whom she said was having marital issues with her military man husband and they were potentially going to go through a divorce. Like she created a whole backstory to her twin sister. It's crazy because you like don't know this person. So you're like, oh, okay. And then- Yeah, you wouldn't be like, you're a psychopath lying straight to my face. People just said like, oh, it's, she seemed really glamorous and like she had this like really interesting life. Like she had this backstory about how like her parents had- raised her older sister. There was another sister in the mix, but then decided they didn't want to care for her and her twins. So they had sent them to their wealthy grandfather who had like abused them by putting them in a closet and like was like mean to them, but he was a truly wealthy man. Like she created these insane stories so that people in New Hampshire were like, wow. How does anyone have time for this? Like I'm going to bed at like eight o'clock. How do you have time for this? <laughs> She doesn't have kids because she tried to poison them. <laughs> I think the not having kids gives you a lot more time oh in life, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So she's now allegedly suffering from debilitating headaches and coworkers recall her appearance and health seeming to suffer as her condition worsened. I mean, she's a method actress over here. Finally. She described the blood disorder as something like the opposite of leukemia. Her body was producing too many red blood cells. She took off a day to go to Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, but told her colleagues, including a woman named Claudia, who had become a close friend, that even the specialists didn't know how to help her. Mm, kind of like when you poisoned your daughter and they yeah, didn't know how I to help her. I don't feel bad for you. Don't feel bad for you in your imaginary blood disorder. Yeah. Go back to your screw factory. <laughs> screw you and your screw factory. Your screw 
screw. You got a few screws loose, you lady. Maybe you'll find them there. Not bloody likely. Eventually, her imaginary ailment became so profound that Robbie had to quit Central Screw again. Here's how that conversation went, according to former boss Ron Oja, as reported to Philip Ginsburg. I'm not doing a good enough job for you, she said. I'm feeling so weak and tired from all the medication that I can't function anymore. Oja was reluctant to see her leave and concerned about her health. I'm going back to Texas to see the doctors there, she said. They had excellent medical care in Houston. She had been treated there the year before. And if that doesn't work, I'll go to Germany. She told him about the research scientist who had made some progress in treating her condition. (laughs) Now there's a research scientist from Germany. The money from the estate, the estate that she has not cashed in on, Uh would allow her to get the best treatment available. Oja renewed his offer to take her back once again. It was too bad that she'd be so far away from her husband, Oja remarked. (gasps) We decided it'd make more sense for him to stay here and keep working, Robbie said. There wouldn't be anything for him to do there. Terry will take care of me. Once again, she was cutting off her stay at Central Screw after nine months. It may be coincidence, but there was some regularity to Marie Hilly's movements. One co-worker familiar with clerical procedures theorized that Robbie's departures were related to the fact that Social Security registration requires three fiscal quarters for processing. After that, some form of cross-checking would take place that might turn up discrepancies in the records of a person like Robbie Hannon Homan. A second theory might see psychological pressure building cyclically within the fugitive, making her increasingly restless and agitated until it drives her to some form of movement, releasing the pressure and starting the sequence again. Whatever the explanation, if the cycles were to continue, Robbie Homan was now due for another major move in November of 1982. So, Robbie slash Marie moves to Texas for only a couple of days before she's like, no, I didn't really like Texas. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to give old Florida a try again. She moves back to Pompano Beach, where she had once lived with Mike and Terry. Her first stop was to a beauty parlor where she got her brunette hair dyed bleach blonde. Then she went to an employment agency where she placed with a company called Solar Testing Services that tests the durability of car paint in the sun for the automobile industry. Wow. Which... I think a subtext of this podcast is all the different ways people can make money because it's like the clasps on jewelry, screws, and now automobile paint testing services. I mean, it's in, they're in the sunshine state. Yeah, right? I get it. So by this time, Robbie Marie didn't start the job. Nope. The butterfly had once again come out of the cocoon, this time as Terry Martin. Yep, Robbie reinvented herself as her imaginary twin sister, Terry. And her daughter-in-law. And her daughter-in-law, yes. Oh my God, this creep monger. Terry was a lot like Robbie because, duh, they're the same person. (laughs) But more bubbly, outgoing, and social. Robbie slash Terry apparently proving to us that blondes do have more fun. Oh, wow. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. You're blonde. I'm brunette. And I think I'm blonde-ish. Well, right now we're both kind of blondish. Yeah. Yeah. We have equal amounts of we fun, have, which is none. We're kind of fun-ish. <laughs> we're fun-ish. We're not fun right now. <laughs> Everything is exhausting. This is the most fun we have all week. Oh, it is. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> 
Guys, we're usually fun and we used to be super fun. But if you're new to the podcast, we recently had babies. We both did. And it has killed. (laughs) We both did. We had babies within five days of each other. And now we have no fun ever. So welcome to the podcast. We're just two mid-30-year-old blondish, funnish people. (laughs) That's it. That's all we have. Blondish, funnish. So she is a bleach blonde. She's full blonde. She's full fun. This is Terry, and she is getting into it. You know what's not fun, though, is getting those roots touched up all the motherfucking time. Yeah, and if you're living a double life, you got to be on top of that Have shit. Have to be. You know? Triple life. Mm-hmm. Triple life. This is triple life now. So over the next six weeks she spends in Florida, Terry loses a ton of weight, helping the transformation from one twin to the other become slightly more believable. She ends up giving her notice at solar testing, telling her boss that her twin sister, Robbie, is dying of a rare blood disorder, Mm -hmm. and she needs to now go to New Hampshire to take care of her. Meanwhile, she also calls John Homan on November 10th, 1982, to tell him that his wife, Robbie Hannon Homan, has died. So she calls her husband to tell him that she is dead. Terry, in quotations, goes on to tell John that Robbie's last Oh, no, no, no. I get get it. Her dying wish is that Terry go to New Hampshire to be with John and comfort him. She even reads a letter from Robbie to Terry and later gives it to him. Are you ready for this? masterpiece please tell me he like doesn't believe this shit i can't tell you anything i'm just going to let you experience it as it unfolds terry i'm afraid i won't make it home and certainly not to germany i want so much to see my john again and i know you have been torn between my wishes and what you feel is right but i don't want him to see me like this i'm trying to hold on until december but though my mind tells me not to give in my body too tired to listen. My mind is telling me no. My body. My body is telling me yes. That was really good. I like that. Writing this is taking every ounce of my energy, but there are things I want you to do. If things don't work out, please don't call John. Use the ticket and go on to New Hampshire. I don't know what effect you will have on him. After all, we have confused people who lived with us every day. So if he doesn't want you there, please don't feel offended. You could be a painful reminder. She's saying, if he's surprised, we look so much alike. Oh, I understand. (laughs) I get it. I don't want to get it, but I get it. Terry, I'm sorry I've given you such a hard time. You have been so wonderful to me. It's just that I miss John so much. I'm miserable without him, and I took it out on you. When we went to live with Grandfather, I was afraid to go to sleep. I was afraid I would wake up and you would be gone. She really should have been a bad novelist. I mean, this is extraordinary. Gold. Mm-hmm. I've lived with the same fear since I've known John. Now I'll wake up someplace and both of you will be gone. I want very much for the two of you to be friends. I love you both very much, more than anything else. If you don't upset John too much, please stay with him as long as he needs you. He is so kind, and you need a friend like him, and I think he will need you. 
He's very sensitive, and if I don't make it, he will feel it very deeply. I know you will want to go back to Denver, but you love cold weather, and New Hampshire is a lovely place. So stay for a while until John gets over the worst. Andy is biting her lips right now. I'm watching you try not to laugh throughout this. Oh. Wait, it, it, it gets better. <clears throat> I don't want either of you to waste time grieving for me. Life is too valuable. It doesn't last that long. I don't want to die. I want to get well and learn to live as you and John know how to do. There's a phone number in my wallet. If things don't work out, that is the number to call. Wait, so she's like, don't call John at the beginning. Just get on a plane. And now she's like, here's the number to call. Okay, call so John. it's John's number. Yes. Oh, my God. I don't want you to know where they'll take me. You might live in a part of country again. You might live in that part of the country again. So she tells her story is that she's donating her body to science. So I, I think that's what she's alluding to here. And I know it would bother you to know where I am. No funeral or memorials. I've lived my life. And those things are too painful for the people who love you. I hope you don't have to read this. I hope I'll just wake up one day and everything will be fine. But this is just in case things go wrong. One more thing. Buy John a lot of Christmas presents. The one thing especially I told you about. He loves Christmas. And if I'm not there... Perhaps I'll come back as a Christmas tree ornament. As a, a really Christmas tree ornament? <laughs> this is the most screwed up Hallmark movie ever. A coming back as an inanimate Christmas tree ornament. So, please, please, Andrea. No sadness at Christmas. I will know and I'll be unhappy. My body is so tired. And if it didn't mean leaving John and you, I'd be ready to trade it in. I want you and John to go someplace and have a lavish dinner, even a party. Time is a slow healer, but I know that eventually it does heal. Just keep that in mind. Everything passes. Just please, 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 please take care of John. He is strong about everything except me. I love you both more than anything else. Honestly, I never thought that was going to end. Like ever. Sorry. We might have to edit that. It was terrible. <laughs> She would really need help with, like, keeping a linear story going. Oh, my goodness. So literally the next day after she calls to inform this man that his wife is dead and she's his wife. twin sister-in-law. Yeah. She gets on a plane and reappears in John Homan's life, this time as Terry. Okay. Please tell me everything. Okay, so gets what weirder. For some bizarre reason, she insists on going to Central Screw Company to tell her former colleagues that Robbie has died. So this bitch just waltzes in there and everyone's like, oh, hey, Robbie, you dyed your hair. <laughs> and she's like, nope, I'm Terry. <laughs> and they're like, um, wait, we worked with you for months. You're not Robbie? She's like, no, Terry. And she's, like, pretending not to know people. She's like, oh, it's so nice to meet you for the first time. I've heard so much about you from Robbie. Oh, my God. She's like, she just really wanted me to come in here and meet all these wonderful people that she talked to about so much. So I just had to come in and meet you and also tell you I'm sorry. She's dead. Oh. Yeah. So her coworkers are like, what? The mother 
effing living what is go- what is going on so half of the people are just like totally face value they're like oh my god robbie's dead that's her twin sister like i can't believe it i really liked robbie this is very tragic and sad and then the other half of people are like what are you guys insane that's just robbie that's the same person which I think is really funny because I 100% think I would be the first person. I'd be like, well, I guess Robbie's dead and that's Terry. Nice to meet you, Terry. Do you need a tour of the town? And you'd be like, Robbie, I know that's you, bitch. <laughs> I would get taken in. I take, I'm so gullible. Oh my God. This is so good. Yeah. This is gold. Yeah, Nathaniel was like, I don't think you'd be either. He's like, I think you'd be the one trying to trick me into (laughs) convincing me that you are your own twin sister, Nessie. Hello there. I'm Nessie. I'm Nessie. I'm Jessie's long lost sister from wherever this accent is from. (laughs) Where do you think it's from? That's where I'm from. (laughs) Oh my God. So Terry moves in with John. And they said that apparently first, like, she is still maintaining this whole facade. Of course, she has and to. She has to. And at first, she stayed in his room and he slept on the couch. But as the weeks go by, one thing leads to another. They're both grieving. Bada bing, bada boom. And now they're both in the bedroom. Bada bang. Bada bang happens. Which is so insane to me because, number one, faking your own death and reappearing to date your husband as your twin sister is... Soap opera levels of crazy. But even if, even if Terry was real, even if this whole thing was not a bizarre fever dream, don't you think it's kind of weird to bang your dead sister's husband if you were a twin? Absolutely. Yeah. So like, even if this situation was real, it's still super weird. Yes. Yes. I also think like, if you guys are banging now, like, wouldn't you kind of know? Like, wouldn't you be like, well, I guess twins just have the same moves? Like, and what the would same you vagina? <laughs> Everything's identical. Like, come on. No, he's just into getting centrally screwed. Oh, I got it. <laughs> that was a bad one. Was, we haven't had a real, a real good mom slash dad joke in a while. So there we go. So as Terry slash Robbie slash Marie is getting accustomed to her new slash old life in New Hampshire, (laughs) her old co-workers at Central Screw decide to sleuth it up and prove once and for all that Robbie is pretending to be Terry. So they start with Robbie's obituary that Terry wrote, and this is what it reads. Robbie L. Homan, 37 of Marlowe, died Wednesday in Dallas, Texas after a long illness. She was born in Buffalo, New York, March 25th, 1945, daughter of Hugh and Cindy Grayson, and had lived in Marlowe for two years. Mrs. Homan was formerly employed by Central Screw Company in Keene and was a member of Sacred Heart Church in Tyler, Texas. Survivors include her husband, John Homan of Marlowe, and two sisters, Terry Martin of Dallas and Jean Ann Trevor of White Plains, New York. Mrs. Homan has requested that her body be donated to the Medical Research Institute in Texas and that no funeral be held. Contributions may be made in her memory to a favorite charity. Oh, wow. After making a few phone calls, the armchair detective co-workers, who should start their own podcast over here, (laughs) (laughs) discover that there's no place as the Texas Medical Research Institute in Dallas, 
nor is there a Sacred Heart Church in Tyler, Texas. Wow. I mean, God damn it, Terry, Robbie, Marie. At least borrow some real places. She's getting too wrapped up. Yeah. So next they call a Texas reporter who begins to research the story and reports back that there is no such car accident as the one Robbie described that killed both her children during the time frame she mentioned. Uh Nor is there a death certificate listed for Robbie Hannon Homan anywhere in Texas, even around the date of the obituary saying when she died. So by now, Terry has gotten a job at a Brattleboro, Vermont book publisher, and she would take the bus every day for her commute from New Hampshire. And she was frequenting a magazine stand to pick up reading material for this ride. But it happened to be a magazine stand that she used to go to all the time as Robbie. So one day, the owner of the stand is gossiping with a Central Screw employee, and it all comes out. The magazine stand owner like basically finds out from this employee, like, hey, there's no such thing as this church. There's no such thing as this, that this accident didn't happen. Like, we really think this is just Robbie. So the guy who owns the magazine stand is friends with a detective on the Keene police force. And he's like, look, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but we don't know why this woman is pretending to be her twin sister. And it might be worth like you guys looking into. So the police begin exploring the options that Terry slash Robbie is on the lam from something. So they start attempting to match her with profiles of known fugitives. They eventually come to believe that Terry Martin is actually a woman named Terry Lynn Clifton, who was wanted for trial and federal drug charges. One of her aliases was Melissa Martin. And usually when criminals use aliases, they tend to be like some mishmash of their name and some commonly used first and last names. So like, If her name's Terry Lynn Clifton and if another alias was Melissa Martin, it would stand to reason that Terry Martin would be another alias, you know? Uh Uh-huh. For sure. Also, Terry Lynn's birthday was February 25th, 1947, which seemed close enough to Robbie slash Terry's reported birthday of March 25th, 1945, which is kind of hilarious because when Marie became Robbie, she shaved 12 years off her age. Stop. She made herself 12 years younger legally. (laughs) Oh, my God. Which I have never understood because personally, I'd rather look like dope for 50 rather than like eh for 40. For sure. (laughs) Yeah, I will always. I will. Guys, I am 37 years old and I look every banging year of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, so they're very convinced at this point they have their woman. And so they go to pick up Terry at her place of work. And when they get there, they take her to the police station. And she's like, I know what this is about, right? And they're like, look, we know you aren't actually Terry Martin. Do you want to just come clean and tell us your real name? And they are fully expecting that she's going to say, yeah, I'm Terry Lynn Clifton. And she goes, Audrey Marie Hilly. And they're like, who the fuck are you? So they're like playing it off and they go and they run her name. Of course. And they find out that she is wanted for murder and attempted murder in Alabama. This is like a jackpot. Like they went for somebody for drug charges and they got a murderer. She's so wrapped up in her own lies and bullshit that she can't even like, it's crazy. She just like. She had never faked her death and then reappeared as her twin sister, this never would have happened. She could have lived the rest of her life without being caught. Yeah. Bananas. So she's arrested on the spot, of course, and Alabama authorities are notified. So while still denying she poisoned Frank or Carol, she does tell them details of her life on the run, revealing several more social security numbers that she had prepared for future identities if necessary. 
when asked how she transformed from Robbie into Terry, because other people were like, her teeth are different. Her eyes are different. Like a bunch of people were going back and forth whether she could actually be the same person. Uh She said she just lost weight and dyed her hair. People believed what they wanted to believe. Wow. People will believe what you tell them. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So Marie expressed a little bit of relief. She said, it's a relief. I'm tired. It's been so confusing about getting caught finally, which I kind of imagine. I feel like at that point you're like, maybe it's just better to own up to it and face the music rather than this life on the run shit, you know? Yeah. How old is she now? Okay. So she's born in... 43. Is that what you said? No, 33. Okay. And this is happening in... Maybe sometime in 83. So, yeah, so she's 50. That's pretty old to be running around, changing your name. It's, it's Losing exhausting. weight, dyeing your hair. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, the police go to question John about his knowledge and involvement with her deception. But both Marie and John swear he had no idea that she wasn't Terry or Robbie. Which, can you even imagine no, that no. conversation? It's so embarrassing. <laughs> Okay. Hey, we have your wife in custody, sir. Well, no, no, no. My wife is dead. Oh, you must mean her twin sister. Well, yes and no. And also, she's neither of those people. (laughs) What the fuck? (gasps) Oh, my God. Mind-numbing. So John totally acts like he had no idea. And get this, he even passes a lie detector test. Of course. He he had been truly duped by Marie. He had no idea what her backstory was. But the craziest thing of all is that he decides to stand by his woman, despite the lies and the false identities and the fact that she's a serial poisoner. <laughs> this is some bizarre love right here. Even Marie herself was initially surprised at his devotion. Well, in custody, she was shocked he wanted to speak to her at all after the police had informed John of her true identity. Oh, my God. This is is an exchange as recorded in Poison Blood. Did they tell you, John? Yes. Well, I don't expect to ever see you again, but could you do me a favor? Would you get me some clothes from the house? Wait a minute, he said. It's not quite so simple as that. She looked at him intently. Did you do it? Of course not, she replied. Then I'm not going anywhere. As the police watched, they leaned close together, talking in a murmur. They had been warned against any physical embrace or emotional outburst. Marie Hilly described this moment to her daughter, Carol, a few months later. I love you, dummy, she recalled John saying. I have to get the best defense that I can for you. Most people, Marie added to her daughter, would have walked away. Yeah, you think? Also, why is Carol, like, talking to her at all? Oh, poor Carol. And in that moment, John Homan had decided, I'm not going anywhere, he told her, and he kept his word long past the point where ordinary measures of loyalty would have been exhausted. As his wife, John later explained, Marie had only wanted two things, a committed relationship filled with love and his own happiness. It was her concern for him that had led to her capture. If she had left things alone and not tried to get out of my life to spare me this problem, he said, well, we still would be living happily in New Hampshire. We had three basically wonderful years, John said. His wife's spells of madness, the marital tension after she returned from Florida, his reluctance to take her back after her first trip to Texas. All of this had shriveled in John's memory to the modest qualification of basically. She is the best thing that has ever happened to me, he exclaimed. Oh, no. What? John. John, get yourself together. 
Marie was extradited to Alabama to stand trial, and John Homan quit his job to follow her, and he also provided the last $150,000 that was left in his trust to cover her legal fees. Oh, my God. All of this really screwed with Carol's head because despite the fact that her mother had tried to kill her and had definitely murdered her father, Carol still wanted approval and love from Marie. So Carol is prevented from going to visit Marie in prison because she is due to testify for the prosecution, but she still remained in touch with Marie via phone and letter, even writing in one, Mom, the letter you wrote to me means a lot. I will keep it forever. I can't come to visit with you until the trial is over. I hope because of this, you won't change your mind about talking to me at all. I still want you to call me whenever you want. I do like hearing from you because I worry about you when I don't hear from you. Plus, because I love you. Oh, my God. Yeah, she messed with her so much. She messed with her so much. And I do think that, like, every kid does want to be loved by their parent. Of you course. Know? Even when they're poisoning them. So this is heartbreaking in general, but even more so in Carol's case, because when the trial finally starts, the defense makes it clear that they intend to prove that Carol poisoned herself because Carol was a depressed, attention-seeking, suicidal lesbian. And so what about Frank, you're thinking? Of course, that one seems pretty open and shut, but nope, they argue that Frank actually died of hepatitis like his original death certificate claimed, completely ignoring the fact that he had fatal amounts of arsenic in his blood, apparently. They also claim oh, that Marie yeah. could not have done this because they say that she was such a caring and loving mother that she put Carol in all these hospitals and tried to get treatment and took her to all these doctors, even when Carol herself didn't want to be treated anymore. They were like, what kind of person would do that while poisoning her at the same time? Jesus. I don't know. That's your client, brah. A manipulative psychopath. That's who. Exactly. So the prosecution is like hogwash. Here's the poison in her purse, jewelry box, and storage with the gosh darn baby food containers that she was feeding Carol from. Like, come on. Wow. Also, here's the insurance policy on Carol, the dead husband who clearly died from arsenic poisoning, the parade of people who testified to getting sick after eating or drinking something in Marie Hilly's home, and of course, the fact that she ran and lived on the lam for over three years. And? So witnesses for the prosecution included Carol and Frida, who testified to Marie giving injections to both Carol and Frank, as well as Mike Hilly, who revealed another potential motivation behind poisoning Carol. A few different people had testified that Marie had been known to be homophobic. And Mike said on the stand that when he spoke to his mother while she was in jail in Vermont for the very first time in over three years, mind you, that one of the very first questions she asked him was, is Carol still a homosexual? Gross. Gross. The star witness for the prosecution was a woman named Priscilla Lang, who had been imprisoned with Marie, who claimed that Marie had admitted to attempting to murder her daughter because she was a lesbian. Wow. She just went lower with it. Mm-hmm. So forensic scientists also testified that Carol had been poisoned for a period of nearly five months with arsenic, small doses at first that got heavier as time went by. When tested, the amount of arsenic in Carol's hair was calculated to be up to 100 times what is normal. Wow. In the prosecution's closing statement, Joe Hubbard said what I feel like we're all thinking here when he said the following. 
It's the worst crime I can imagine for a mother to break all the rules of a mother-daughter relationship and try to kill her own child for a little money. And now she comes into court and tries to crucify Carol by saying she's a pervert and a suicidal psycho who's framed her mother. As the judge dismissed the jury to begin deliberations, Marie had the audacity to catch Carol's eye and mouth, I love you, and then gesture for Carol to meet her out in the hall. Poor Carol began shaking, whispered, I can't back, and burst into heaving sobs. Oh my God, poor woman. She's just torturing her. After less than three hours of deliberation, the jury found Audrey Marie Hilly guilty of murder in the first degree, as well as guilty of attempted murder. Thank The jurors would later say that her guilt was so obvious to them that it only required one vote on both charges. Wow. So they were like, that three hours was just doing paperwork. I mean, they knew it. Marie was sentenced to life in prison on the murder charge and 20 additional years for the attempted murder. On June 9th, 1983, Marie was remanded to Julia S. Tutwiler State Women's Prison in Wetumpka, Alabama. John Homan stayed in Alabama to be near his wife throughout her imprisonment. Speaking of his unaccountable loyalty, John would say, this is all about just one thing. It's a four-letter word that a lot of people don't like to hear. He would pause to let the impression grow that the word might be vulgar and then finish the thought with an arch smile. The word is love. I knew he was going to say that. (laughs) About his wife, John repeated what he had said to a New Hampshire reporter. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. She's never done anything to harm me. You're the only one, sir. And he might just have a tummy of steel. (laughs) Wouldn't that be funny? Oh, my God. In the fall of 1983, the case of Sonia Gibson was closed. Her body contained only the small amounts of arsenic considered normal. Oh, weird. So I guess she didn't kill Sonia. It just was a random coincidence. That's weird. Yeah. So Marie Hilly would become eligible to be considered for parole in 1990 after serving only about one third of her sentence. The universal reaction around Aniston when the subject came up over the following months was indignation. Seven years for what she did, they should never let her out, the consensus went. Yeah, definitely not enough time. No. Even worse, in February of 1987, Marie was offered furlough, meaning she could take occasional trips outside of the prison. After four successful eight-hour leaves behind her, Marie was offered a three-day furlough. (gasps) John picked Marie up, and the two drove nearly two hours to Aniston to stay in a motel together. On the day Marie was due back to the prison, she told John she wanted to go to her parents' graves alone and that she would meet him at the Waffle House before their drive back to Wetumpka. Two hours after Marie failed to meet him, John called the police. When they arrived, he handed over a note he had found underneath the pillow in their hotel room. It read, Dear John, I hope you will be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It will be the best for everybody. We'll be together again. Please give me an hour to get out of town. Destroy this note. The note went on to say that a friend named Walter was driving Marie to Atlanta. From there, they would fly to Canada, where he would employ her in his business. When she had gotten settled and saved some money, she would contact John through a woman in New Hampshire, and they would be reunited. They would find a new place and begin their life together again. The sheriff dispatched deputies to check bus terminals, taxi companies, and the airport. If they moved quickly, maybe they could head her off before she slipped away. 
but the search turned up no sign of Marie Hilly. In the days after Marie's disappearance, FBI agents were dispatched to check Carol and Mike as well as other family members, but no one really wanted anything to do with her at this point. They were certainly not harboring her. So the authorities feared that she could be on the lam for years again until that fateful day that Sue Craft spotted a wretched creature scrambling to get into her neighbor's house. Audrey Marie Hilly, a woman notable for her fastidious appearance, had been hiding out in the woods for potentially days eventually becoming hypothermic in the cold rain of the Alabama winter. Marie, covered in mud and nearly catatonic, was rushed to the hospital, where Lieutenant Carroll, the police officer she had once turned to during her imaginary harassment, positively identified the fugitive as they wheeled her to the ICU. The hypothermia Marie had suffered from resulted in a fatal heart attack. Audrey Marie Hilly was pronounced dead at 5.06 p.m. She had only been 53 years old. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Wow. After committing murder undetected, nearly killing her daughter as well, jumping bail, faking her own kidnapping, eluding capture for over three years, faking her own death, impersonating an imaginary twin sister, and living as a fugitive <laughs> in three different states, she somehow ended up dying dirty and freezing on the porch of a woman it turned out she had gone to high school with only a mile away from her childhood home. That is so insane. That is so full circle. Wow. It was a terrible ending for a terrible woman. Audrey Marie Hilly was laid to rest next to the man she had been convicted of murdering, her husband, Frank Hilly. In a service presided over by her son, the Reverend Michael Hilly, with Carol, the daughter she poisoned, and John Homan, the husband she duped in attendance. Oh my God. And that, that concludes the nightmarish roller coaster ride that was Marie, Robbie, Terry, whoever. <laughs> wow. If she wanted to live a life like they do in novels, she certainly did it, huh? She did. She did. Woofstable. Woo. Okay. So we got like to go take conclusion. a shower. <laughs> right? Isn't that crazy? What a wild story. If you guys enjoyed that one, please hit us up with a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know. And in conclusion, if you are a fugitive from the law... Keep a nice, clean storyline. Don't complicate it. Don't come back as a dead twin sister. Just keep it simple, guys. Keep it keep it simple. That's probably the best. If you are going over to someone's house and having repeated stomach cramps after drinking their special batch of roasted coffee, maybe you don't drink any more of it. Yeah. Maybe have an open dialogue about how your guts are feelings with your colleagues. Your actual you guys guts. can all... <laughs> you can feel you can figure out what's going on with everybody yes and as always trust your gut when it comes to love or you just might end up banging your wife's imaginary twin sister Doodles. thank you guys so much for listening bye bye